you have your Bibles, if you would open them to James chapter 5. The book of James chapter 5. Today we come to the last passage in the book of James. As we've seen, chapter 5, verses 7 to 20, uh, form the conclusion of the sermon. Chapter 1 is the introduction. Chapters 2, 3, and 4 are the three points of his sermon. And now in chapter 5, we have the conclusion. And he emphasizes two aspects. The first is patience or perseverance, and the other is prayer. As I've mentioned before, patience is mentioned seven times in verses 7 through 12, and prayer is mentioned seven times in verses 13 through 18. Let's read verses 13 through 18. We've studied up to verse number 16, but let's read the passage. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. As we saw last week, there are four aspects of prayer that are mentioned here. First of all, the praying individual in verse number 13. If anyone is in trouble, he or she should pray. Secondly, the praying elders, if someone is sick, and they ask the elders to come and pray. And thirdly, the praying friend, that if in fact there has been uh, a severing, if you wish, of the friendship, one has sinned against the other, they should, the one who has sinned should go and confess, and together they should pray, and in that sense be reconciled. Today we're going to look at the fourth part, and that is the praying prophet. Here we have someone who is very human, and yet we have a supernatural result um, from his prayers. I think, though, before we proceed, it might be helpful for us to review what it means to pray. What is prayer? Prayer is one of those words that a lot of people use um, in different ways, but I think without realizing it, they oftentimes miss the boat. We did a series on prayer some time back, and I just would remind you of some of the things we saw. As I said, I would suggest to you that everyone prays. But it is not, well, I would say not everyone who prays, prays to God. Certainly not to the true God. And I would even say that this could be true of Christians, as shocking as that might seem. Living when and where we do, I think there is a strong temptation to reduce prayer to, as a means to an end. I want to get something and so I pray. It's like putting a coin in a vending machine to get what you want. Or it might be, in fact, a way to, ex- to improve your well-being. So it's not only getting something that you want, but something to improve your station in life, to achieve some sense of well-being. Um, everyone prays, but not everyone prays correctly. What is prayer? Prayer is, to quote one author, prayer is a dialogue 
It discloses a genuinely personal relation. So prayer is talking to God in dialogue. Okay, if prayer is in fact a dialogue, that's two parties are involved, who begins the conversation? This, I'm convinced, is the critical question and answer to the question of what prayer is. I've said this many times over the years, but I can't emphasize it enough. If we get this wrong, then in fact, our view of prayer, in my opinion, will be wrong. So let's start at the beginning, the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of human history. Who spoke first? Who was the person who spoke first? It was God in creation when he said, let there be light. Have you ever wondered why did God speak? Why didn't he simply think or snap his fingers? Why, in fact, did he speak? The emphasis on speaking and on the word is so pervasive in Scripture that I think it just goes by us. We, you know, it's like being a fish in water. Fish don't necessarily know anything different than water. That's just the way that it is. I think oftentimes that's, it is, that's the way it is when we come to Scripture. To be human in part means to have the ability to communicate and to communicate with words. And why do we do this? Because we are made in the image of the Creator. We are made in the image of God. And so we have a God who speaks and who is in dialogue. And when God said, let us make man in our image, this is a conversation that is going on within the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. God did not need us to have someone to have dialogue with. There was already dialogue. But once he created us, then in fact, he entered into conversation with us. So he begins the conversation and we respond in prayer. Prayer is in fact response in speech. We're responding to God in prayer. I tend to think, well, let me start over. I think that many people tend to think of prayer as beginning with us. And so they carry the burden of, I've got to do this, rather than recognizing that in fact God has spoken first and we are replying, we are responding. We've seen this in our study in the book of Genesis, how that the Lord came to Abraham and said, yeah, should I tell you what I'm going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? And then Abraham responds and says, you know, will the judge of the earth do what is right? And you have this going back and forth. What if there are 50 righteous people, 45, 40? Abraham is responding to a conversation that God began. And then there is the incident when a man wrestled with Jacob. Oftentimes we describe the event as Jacob wrestling with the Lord. Uh, Actually, the Lord wrestled with Jacob. And all Jacob could do was wrestle back in return. Then we go through the rest of the Old Testament. Hannah uh, was barren. God caused her barrenness. She cried out to God. So God caused her barrenness and she cried out and God gave her Samuel. So God initiates the dialogue, sometimes with words, sometimes with our circumstances, and sometimes through scripture as we read it and study it. What we see is that God's people have responded in prayer, and that is what we are supposed to do. It begins with God. We respond in prayer, and God hears and answers our prayers.
James has told us as much so far that God initiates the dialogue and prayer and that God answers our prayer because he said, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. And the implication is God has brought about circumstances and now we respond in prayer. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church and to pray over him. And then in verse 16, that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. It's actually in verse 15. Do we in fact believe that God is involved in every aspect of our lives? Do we believe that, as James said at the very beginning of the sermon, count it pure joy when you encounter all kinds of trials? Do we in fact believe that God is the one who is bringing these trials into our lives? These are tests. And will we respond in prayer or will we go the other way? Will we try to figure things out on our own? The appropriate response is prayer. He began the conversation. One of the questions that's come up over the centuries is, if in fact God knows what he's going to do, why should we bother to pray? Uh, If everything is determined, if God is in control, then why in fact should we pray? But this is the means that God has determined for him to accomplish his will, that his children would in fact cry out to him in prayer and he would answer their prayers. I think that's the hardest part for many people. It's like many Christians would rather be stoic, sort of grin and bear it, and it's going to happen anyway, so, and then, you know, this too shall pass. Why should we pray? Because it's a conversation, and we are to speak to our Father. James now brings up an interesting Old Testament character. He's mentioned Job, and now he mentions Elijah. Verse 17, Elijah was a man just like us. Actually, let's go to the end of verse number 16. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. James is a pastor, and it is of great concern to him that his readers should believe this, that prayer is a response to problems, even the serious problem of illness. It has the power to heal the sin-sick soul and even sin-torn fellowship. So now he talks about Elijah. Remember, James is writing to Jews. They have left Jerusalem because of persecution. They know the Old Testament. Sadly, I think in the church today, many people don't know the Old Testament unless they went to Sunday school and were taught the Bible lessons there. But he tells us a story of Elijah. And in in the process tells us that prayer is in fact powerful. It has great power. Um, Secondly, it is effective. And thirdly, it is, the foundation of it is a righteous person. And that's where we sort of begin to back up and say, well, uh, I would not claim to be righteous, so does that mean that my prayer has little or no effect? That's why he brings up Elijah, I think. 
Elijah was one of the Old Testament prophets in Israel, the ten tribes to the north. Um, Very interesting character, to say the least. But James says he was just like us. He was a human being just like us. He could be fearless, but then he could be depressed. He could be not quite suicidal, but he prayed that God, in fact, would kill him. He seemed to have great highs and great lows. He was a human being just like us. He could be afraid, very fearful, and we certainly see that to be the case. He could despair. Suddenly, perhaps if we've had Elijah up on a pedestal, he sort of comes down and he's now at our level. And we're like, James would say, good. Okay, okay, I want you to get that. He was just like us. But above all, Elijah was a man of prayer. This is what James wants us to know. Elijah is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, and 19. Um, And it begins with the story that James tells here. And I wonder if James' readers would have said, no, 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 you should tell the other story about Elijah. This This isn't the best one. The story starts out, the ten tribes of the north, they have apostatized. They are no longer worshiping the true God. The king, Ahab, has married Jezebel, the famous Jezebel from Sidon, who is a pagan, and she has brought paganism, Baalism, into the ten tribes of the north, and they're now all worshiping uh, the false god Baal. And the story opens in chapter 17 that Elijah prays that it won't rain. That's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, just the first time he's mentioned, it's like, Yeah, Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. It didn't rain for three and a half years. But we have to read the whole story to know that, in fact, it is God who told him that he should pray that it would not rain. And later on, we'll tell him that he should pray that it would rain, and in fact, it does. It's an unusual story. It doesn't rain, he's in hiding. So there's a drought, there's a famine, he's in hiding, but the Lord sends ravens every day to bring him food. And he's by a brook, and so he's got water, but then the brook dries up, it hasn't rained, and the Lord tells him to go not to Israel, but over to Sidon, the other side, where the pagans are. And there he runs into a widow. In the ancient world, and in many parts of the world even today, a widow is someone who is without means, someone who is in a very precarious situation. And Elijah goes up to her and says, listen, uh, fix me some food. And she's like, I have enough for myself and my son. We're going to eat this, and then we're going to die, because that's all we've got. And Elijah's like, no, fix it, and, and I'll eat it. And miraculously, she does do it, and she has oil and she has flour the rest of the time. God miraculously provides. It's like, yeah, James, tell him, tell him that story. But he doesn't. And then, after a certain period of time, the widow's son dies. 
And Elijah goes and prays for him, and he's raised from the dead. Tell that story. That's the good one. No, that's not the one James tells us. Finally, the Lord says to Elijah, okay, it's time for you to go back home. Go and confront the king. Confront Ahab. And there's a really interesting story about Obadiah, but for lack of time, I would encourage you to read 1 Kings chapter 18. Anyway, a fascinating line. Elijah goes up to Ahab, and Ahab says, Oh, is that you, Elijah, you troubler of Israel? You're the one who's troubling the people. And Elijah's like, yeah, that's not me, that's you. So he says, okay, let's go to Mount Carmel, a high peak. And let's have, for lack of a better word, a contest. You get the 450 prophets of Baal, have them build an altar, give them an ox to sacrifice. And I will have an altar and an ox to sacrifice. We'll let them go first, because there's a lot of them. 450. We'll let them go first. And they will pray to Baal to see if he can bring down fire and light the sacrifice. And then I'll go next. So Elijah, in fact, allows them to go and they begin to pray. Um, obviously, well, nothing happens. It was interesting. It says they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. They even began to cut themselves with knives and with spears to somehow get Baal's attention. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. I, I told you he was a character. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now it's Elijah's turn. It's a time of the evening sacrifice. He has rebuilt the altar with 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. He has sacrificed an animal with the wood. And then he has people dig a ditch around it and then covers the sacrifice and the altar with gallons and gallons of water. He has them do it three times, by the way. Cover it with water. Yeah, do it again. Finally, the third time. And then at the time of sacrifice, he prayed. O oh Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O oh Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. And all the people saw this. They fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. James, tell this story. This, this is the one. 
And this is not the story he tells. Which I find really fascinating. He tells the one about praying that it won't rain. And then later on that it will rain. Elijah instructs the people, you know, the 450 prophets, um, we need to kill them. And so they do. They kill the 450 prophets of the false god Baal. And then Elijah prays for rain. And this is the fascinating part of the story, and I think it's why James includes this. This is the one he tells about. It says, in fact, um, Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there's the sound of a heavy rain. So Elijah went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the uh, the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went and looked. There's nothing there. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. And then it began to rain. It rained like mad. And the power of the Lord came on Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt and he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Um, Fascinating story. I think the point of the story is that the initiative rests with God. Elijah's prayer is not about rain, per se. It is about the people of God coming back to him. And as they say, when God devours the sacrifice, the Lord, he is God. Why seven times? He prayed earnestly. Oftentimes we think, oh, all I have to do is pray once and and that's enough. On the other hand, we need to be careful that we don't think, I need to pray and pray and pray and pray, and that the amount of our prayer, in fact, will influence God. No, I think that we need to pray sincerely and earnestly, as Elijah did. But the story takes a turn here. Jezebel's not happy. (laughs) She brought in 450 prophets. Elijah's had them killed. And she says to him... um, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of those. In other words, you killed 450 of them, I'm going to kill you. And what does Elijah do? This man who prayed and God brought fire down from heaven, the man who prayed and raised a boy to life, the man who prayed and it stopped raining, he prayed and now it starts raining. What does he do? He runs. He's a man just like us, someone just like us. And in this exhaustive state, we find him in a state of what today in modern terms we would call deep depression. Um, He says, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. In other words, God, just kill me. I've had enough. It's like, wait a minute. You prayed and it didn't rain. You prayed and it rained. You prayed and raised the boy to life. You prayed and fire came down from heaven and you've had enough? He 
laid down, fell asleep. The angel of the Lord came and gave him some food, and then he ran all the way to Mount Sinai. And when he is there, he has this wonderful confrontation with God. Elijah is an example for us. One thing I think that throws people is the word earnestly. In verse number 17, he prayed earnestly. It's like, you know, do you have to sort of grunt or groan or something? Not, the King James actually has a note in the center reference that he prayed in his prayer. In Greek, it is literally, with prayer, he prayed. It's find fascinating. It seems to indicate that sometimes our prayers aren't exactly prayer. They're more sort of wishes, uh, desires. There's not the proper reverence for God. Uh, I would say when Elijah said, go ahead and kill me, yeah, that's not praying with prayer. That's someone speaking out of despair. The reality is he prayed. And there were spectacular results. This is what James wants his readers, what he wants us to know. That God, the creator, orders the life of the world, and he does so in the light of our prayers. Prayer is effective, and prayer is powerful. In this last part of his letter, of his sermon, James is making the point that all of life should be lived with reference to God. If you are in trouble, you should pray. Are you happy? You should sing songs of joy. All of life is to be lived in reference to God. In other words, there is no point in our life, there should be no point in our life, where we say, I'm good. I've got it covered. Our lives are lived in response to what God has done in our lives, either singing praise or praying to him. Elijah prayed in response to what God had told him. We are to pray in response to what God says to us in our circumstances, in his word, um, as he speaks to us. I would think this would be a good point to end the letter, the sermon. This would be like, yeah, end with a punch, you know, mic drop, you know, walk away. But he has two more verses, which seemingly seem out of sorts with what the rest of the letter is about, but actually it's not. Look at verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the faith, or from the truth, and someone, and someone should bring him back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I said at the beginning of the series, and I've mentioned it several times, uh, James is the pastor, he's writing to former members, but he calls them brothers. Fifteen times in his letter, he calls them brothers. Five of them are in this last section. And here in the last two verses, he starts out by saying, my brothers. In other words, he's not up on a throne somewhere looking down. He's speaking to them. Elijah was one like us. I am one like you. So my brothers. Okay. If someone should wander, if any one of you. By the way, in verse number 13, 
Is any of you in trouble? Okay. In verse 14, if any of you, or any one of you, and here in verse number 19, if one of you. The big change happens, though, between verses 13 and 14. In verse number 13, Paul or James deals with um, how we as individual Christians are to look after ourselves. If you look at verse number 13, is any one of you in trouble? So he should pray. Okay. But verse 14 is if somebody is sick and they call the elders. And then if you have sinned against someone, confess and pray together. Um, and now if somebody has wandered from the faith, from the truth, uh, the focus is not about me. It starts that way, but then it shifts to others. When we are suffering, we should pray, granted, but we should also pray for one another. Prayer acknowledges that God is sufficient. Not just for me. From verse 14 on, it's about mutual care. Calling on the elders to pray for healing and reconciling between believers. And now to restore someone of the fellowship, of the congregation who has wandered from the truth. What is interesting is that in verse number 15, that the prayer of the elders will make the person well, will in fact raise him up. In verse number 16, the relationship will be healed. But here, it is saving someone from death. This third one, I think, is different, though, than the others, because we are to care for each other not only when somebody is sick, when someone is in spiritual need, maybe they've sinned against us, but even when there is no call, when someone says, yes, I need you to pray for me. What we find in verses 19 or 20 is the person who has wandered from the truth may not even be aware that he or she has wandered from the truth. But because we care, because we are to care for one another, we go after that person and bring them back. So the scenario is this, that there's someone in the congregation, in the fellowship, who has wandered from the truth. And in fact, he or she has lived in the error of his way. Remember, truth is not simply abstract thought, you know, theoretical. It is how we are to live our lives. Truth is a living thing. And when it grips our minds, it changes everything, if we would allow it to. So is James talking about someone who's fallen into heresy, bad doctrine? Is he talking about someone who's living in sin? Yes. I mean, why do we have to make a choice? I, I think he's talking about someone who has wandered from the truth. Then he says, interestingly enough, one of you, not an elder, not the elders, but one of you. You know, the rescuer, in fact, goes out. You know, the elders have responsibilities, and, and possible, possibly it's one of the elders who does this, but it doesn't have to be. Someone in the congregation could notice that so-and-so has wandered from the truth. 
And so this person goes and they rescue this person from death. They save him from death. One of the problems we have, I think, with James is that the time in which we live, religion is seen as a very personal, private, interior impulse. It isn't seen as something that we live out in our lives. But that's what the book of James is about. You know, if you say, I believe, but you don't help someone, though you don't care for those in need, James is like, that's, that's demonic. The devils believe and they tremble. You could say, well, I praise the Lord. God has done this for me. And then with the same mouth, with the same tongue, you curse people who are made in God's image. See, the whole point of James' letter is that there is a tendency for us to live as double-minded people, a foot in each camp. To say we are the children of God, but basically to sleep with the world. And he uses the, the expression that you are adulteresses. You're being unfaithful to God. We believe, that is, we act in faith, and we don't believe. That is, we act as atheists. That has been the tendency, and that's what James has addressed throughout this letter. Well, if that's the case, and by the way, why do we do that? Because the bad side, if you wish, and Zib read to us today, Romans 7, has an ally within us, saying, let's go this way so that we say one thing, but we do something else. If that's the case, then you could see where someone would wander from the truth. If they, in fact, have a foot in each camp, before they know it, they actually begin to have two feet in the wrong camp. James writes this so that people won't be double-minded, And maybe for some people, they do become single-minded in the wrong camp. And so James calls on them to go and rescue these people. We are to carry one another's burdens. We are to restore someone who is caught in sin. We are to motivate each other, spur each other on to good works, we are told elsewhere in the New Testament. We are responsible for one another. I think this could be what James has in mind here. We are told in the New Testament, in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In the Gospel of John, that no one can pluck us from the Father's hand. What Zib read to us today from Romans 7, that sin no longer has absolute power over us. So what is James talking about here? If, if nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, how can one wander from the truth? How can someone be in danger of death? Again, this is part of the time in which we live, and it began in the 19th century, where people are convinced that if they say a prayer, in a church that has an altar call, if they go forward, it's done. They've had their ticket punched. They're going to heaven. The reality is we are to accept the truth. We are to live in truth by the grace of God, the power of the Spirit, every day. 
every day. We're not to be double-minded. We're not to say, hey, I've got my ticket punched, but you know, in the meantime, I'll live the way I want to. To be a child of God means, in fact, that we live in truth. In my intent, and I think certainly with James, his intent is not to cause people to doubt whether or not they are Christians, but to be aware of the potential for sin in our lives to take us away from the path that God has put us on. The last words of this sermon are, will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The idea of covering is a very Old Testament idea. And as I've told you, James is probably the first book written in the New Testament. It's written to Jews. They know the Old Testament. So he doesn't have to keep quoting the Old Testament the way that Paul does when he's writing to not only Jews, but to Gentiles as well. The idea of covering is something we find from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned, they covered themselves up with fig leaves. And then we are told that God covered them up with skins because their nakedness was now evident. Passover is about putting blood on the doorpost to cover the doorpost at the top on the sides with blood. The mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant is in fact called the atonement cover. It covers it. This is a very Old Testament idea. What about covering sins in the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, we're told that when a person comes to Christ as Savior, uh, it's not simply for one sin that he or she has committed, but in fact, the whole multitude of their sins have been forgiven. And then in First Peter, a wonderful verse, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. The, the idea is, I know you're a sinner. That may offend you, but I know that you are a sinner. I trust that you know that I'm a sinner and that we will do things, we will sin. But love, in fact, doesn't say, here, let me write you a ticket. This is something you did wrong. That in many ways, we don't ignore the sin, but neither do we dwell on it because we love each other. Someone might say, wait, 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 David, I thought this was God's job, that God forgives sins, that God, for, you know, he covers our sins with the blood of Jesus. Um, James, James seems to be saying that now this is our responsibility. No, he's not. Okay. He isn't saying that, and we, in fact, cannot wash away someone's sin. But we must, in fact, act as though we can. We must, in fact, be willing to forgive one another to act in each other's lives and to pull each other from the, blink, the brink if in fact we find someone wandering from the truth. We cannot cover a person's sins, cannot forgive them, but we must follow the example of Jesus who can and has forgiven our sins.
So here at the end of his sermon, what is James saying to his readers? It's all about God, by the way. It's not about us. That God speaks to us and we respond in prayer. He speaks to us through his word, through our circumstances, through trials and more. The question is, are we listening? But the second question is, are we responding in prayer? You may remember that James said in the first chapter, we are to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Quick to listen, are we? Do we listen? In one of the hymns that we sing, it says, I know the sweet sound of your voice. Do we? Are we listening? Are we sensitive to hearing God speak in our lives? If it hasn't been evident to you yet, I love the book of James. I think it is a book that this generation needs because it calls us to singleness of purpose. Don't be double-minded. And it tells us, in fact, that the truth is to be lived out. It isn't simply something in our heads or something that we say. It is something that is to be lived out. James wrote to people who had left Jerusalem because of persecution, and he wonders how they're doing. He's pretty sure they know the truth. They heard the apostles. Some of them probably even heard Jesus himself. So they know, they know the truth. The question is, are they living the truth? And they need to recognize two truths here at the end of the sermon. We belong to each other. We are to care for each other. We are to pray for each other. But prayer is a response to God. God has spoken and we respond in prayer. And prayer is powerful. It is effective. Like I said, James could have given us all these tremendous examples of Elijah, but instead he speaks of something in nature. No more rain. He prays and it doesn't rain. I don't know about you, but that's, that's pretty amazing. And then he prays for rain, and it does rain. We are to pray for one another, believing in faith that prayer is effective. It is powerful. It's part of a conversation that our Father began. And he began the conversation because he loves us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the book of James and what it has to teach us. And I ask that by your grace and your spirit, we have learned some of that. But we are reminded that prayer is, in fact, powerful, and it is effective. And so now here, at the end of our time together, we pray again for those who are in need and pray that you would act in their lives as we've seen you act in the past, and certainly in the case of Elijah. We pray for Lonnie, that you would touch her, give her healing and strength, remove her pain. For Jamie's mother, who is going through chemo, with cancer treatment, 
that you would restore her as well. For Tess, who will see the doctor tomorrow to find out what's going on with her kidneys. For Yoli, who has lost vision in her eye, that you would restore that vision. We know all things are possible with you. For Yakina, that you would bring an end to the seizures. For Feli, you would guide her and the doctors as to what should be done with regard to her knees. But we pray that you, in fact, would bring healing in her life. For these and other things that have been mentioned, we commit them to you. The same God who answered Elijah, answer our prayers as well. As the dialogue continues, you love us, you speak to us, you act in our lives. And we respond in prayer. But like the man whose son was demon-possessed, we have to admit, we believe, help us in our unbelief. May we not be double-minded, but trust you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for speaking to us day after day. Thank you for your patience when we do not listen, when we do not respond. But often as petulant children, we, we cry out in despair, as Elijah did. But you're so merciful, and you're so patient, and we give thanks. I thank you for this time together and ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place, as we walk through the world in the coming days. We pray for Tom and Ann who are flying back today that you would give them safety and safety to each one as we go to our homes. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.